This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, journalist Masha Gessen discusses her new book, The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot reviews 2017's best-selling books so far. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by NPD Bookscan. Well, we have a new number one in hardcover fiction, which is Sleeping Beauties by King and King. That would mm-hmm. be Stephen King and Owen King. Uh, we say that this is a delicious first collaboration between father and son, both already well-established novelists. And uh, this one is a horror-tinged realistic fantasy that imagines what could happen if most of the women of the world fall asleep, leaving men on their own. And it focuses on a rural Appalachian County where uh, people think that this is just something affecting the rest of the world, but then it lands on their doorstep. Our review says that the author's writing is seamless and naturally flowing, and the book gets off to a slow start because of the amount of setup needed, but once the action begins, it barrels along like a freight train. That's at number one. No surprise, it sold over 60,000 copies, and uh, I'm sure it'll keep doing well for a while because those are definitely names that make sales happen. At number two, we have Don't Let Go by Harlan Coben. We gave this a starred review, said it's an outstanding standalone from bestseller Coben. Uh, In this one, a New Jersey cop is shocked to learn that fingerprints at the scene of a crime, uh, the shooting death of a fellow cop who was also his high school classmate, belong to his high school sweetheart who disappeared 15 years earlier. And we say that uh, when when the protagonist begins tracking surviving members of a student group called the Conspiracy Club, it becomes clear that someone or something is now trying to eliminate them. Coben keeps the protagonist and the reader guessing as he peels back layers of deceit reaching back 15 years, revealing nesting dolls of deadly secrets. And finally, uh, the only other new book on the list is all the way down at number 25. It's The Christmas Room by Katherine Anderson. It may seem a little bit early for Christmas, but October is when a lot of Christmas books start hitting mm. the shelves. We did a whole big roundup of Christmas romances, and this was on there. We gave it a starred review and said that Anderson strikes a vein of romance gold with this tender contemporary tale of two feuding Montana families, uh, the McLendons and the Conikers, and... Uh, they end up being next door neighbors, and there's a lovely pair of romances happening in two different generations between the cantankerous elderly parents and their grown children. Uh, we say that readers seeking comfortable characters in a gently paced story will fall in love with Anderson's tale of unexpected connections. So if you're a fan of Christmas books, don't be surprised to see them on the <laughs> shelves starting pretty much now. Uh, there's uh, a whole lot of them. 
Wow. And uh, we don't often see them on the bestseller list, especially because a lot of them come out in mass market. Right. And this early as well. Yeah. October is when they happen. Yeah. And uh, wow. I'm, I've never been entirely sure why that is, if it gives people some time to buy them for holiday gifts or uh, if it gives them time to reach into the the furthest reaches of right. the hinterlands, and it's sort of a leftover from when it was harder to ship things all the way to small town bookstores. Right, right, right. But for whatever reason, October is when the Christmas books come out. All right. Well, looking at nonfiction, uh, I'm just going to go through a couple of titles. Our highest debut is Food Can Fix It, Mehmet Oz. Not surprising. It's, uh, it's about how food can fix your health, your diet, your thinking. And then we have Blue Ocean Shift. Uh, subtitles Beyond Competing, Proven Steps to Inspire Confidence and Seize New Growth by W. Chan Kim and Renee Malborn. These are two business school professors uh, who dedicate the stirring business primer to showing how organizations can move from fighting over crowded markets with competitors uh, to creating their own markets. So that is at number eight. Dipping down a little bit, we have number 17. Uh, this, this is pretty interesting. The Atlas of Beauty, celebrating the world's diversity through portraits of women. And this is based on uh, Mahela Noros. Uh, uh, she posted this, uh, was an online project, got picked up. And these are 500 women from more than 55 countries. And each one is accompanied with a, a personal story. So, and that one, you know, for a photo book, you know, Pretty great that it made it on the bestseller list. That's very impressive. And I thought so. And then we have at number 20, uh, another cookbook, Sally's Cookie Addiction by Sally McKenney. Maybe going in dovetailing with a Christmas book. So. It might be that time. <laughs> right, exactly. And that's what we got. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Masha Gessen tells us about totalitarianism taking hold again in modern Russia. We'll be right back. I'm Vanessa Panfil, the author of The Gang's All Queer, The Lives of Gay Gang Members, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Masha Gessen on the line. Her new book is The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. Hello, Masha. So glad you could join us. Thank you for having me. So first, I... We have to congratulate you on being a National Book Award finalist for nonfiction, which was just announced. Um, uh, Got to ask, what were your first thoughts uh, that came to mind? <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> um, so there's there's actually I, I can probably say a little bit more about this than most um, finalists because uh, you know because in addition to sort of awe, I had. Um, I, I had a very strong reaction of disbelief, um, and that has to do with the fact that I had uh, I was the chair of the nonfiction jury last year, right? And I came away with a conclusion. And I told my publisher this. I said, you know, a Russia book is never going to make the long list of the National Book Award. Never mind win the National Book Award because um, you see what happens is all non all of the nonfiction books. Uh, are in the, in one category mm -hmm. for the National Book Awards, unlike say the Pulitzers, and um, and so you you know you see these like last year it was 525 books. Wow, right? And and you immediately uh, in my mind, I mean this is obviously not what's happened in other years, but this is my solipsism. So in my in my mind, um, a lot of the really lovely uh, more sort of personal books or books that are just small in scope. 
immediately had to feed to the bigger books and the more ambitious books. Right? And, um, you know, which is not to say that more ambitious books are, are necessarily more important or by any means better, right? It's just that um, you kind of, because you only can give one a word, um, right. you, you tend to privilege something that's, that's sort of monumental. And then there's so many books that um, that tackle uh, sort of the condition of this country, the history of this country, that really aim to change the way that we think about certain key concepts. And like last year, you know, we gave the award to this amazing book um, called Stamp from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, um, which I thought was hugely important because it really, it really does change the way you think about racism. And it's a book that hadn't even been reviewed in the New York Times and that a lot of people wouldn't have read. I think, you know, hardly anybody would have read it. It was a book written by a young academic um, if we hadn't drawn attention to it. And there are actually many books like that. They're like books that you look at and you think everyone should read this book. And if I don't do something, uh, then most people are not going to hear about it. And I think that, that that tendency, you know, that feeling is more urgent when it concerns this country, hmm. uh, as as well it should be. Uh, obviously, you know, there there are like these days there are weird um, perils and weird urgencies that cross over from Russia to this country, which is something I didn't expect at all when I was writing this book. Right. Uh, but anyway, I'm you know I've, I've, I'm in total disbelief, and obviously very happy because the news um, I learned the news actually on publication date. Um, which was October third, and um, and they announced what was made the next day. Yeah, that is pretty pretty amazing. I, I don't know of many many writers who <laughs> would have uh, celebrated the publication date the next day, um, received word of of nomination for an award. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so, well, let's talk a little bit about the book. And, and you begin it, or at least uh, a chapter in, with a reference to George Orwell's 1984, saying uh, in the book that, that that this book could not be published in a society that is that uh, that is uh, that it's describing. Uh, so, tell us about the book's significance. That is uh, Orwell's 1984, and of a journalist named Andre uh, Amalric. Amalric, yeah. So, uh, so tell us about uh, about the significance of George Orwell in, in the opening of your book. Um, so, I set out to write uh, the definitive book on Russia, as people do every couple of years, and uh, uh, and uh, and I wanted to 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 look at the last thirty years to try to understand how democracy didn't happen. And um, and because my hypothesis was really that I was writing about trauma, uh, historical trauma, cultural trauma, societal trauma, right? Um, I I needed to to do it from um, from the inside of people's heads. And for the, the the main four people in the book who allowed me into their heads for long periods at a time. Uh, to, 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 to try to carry out this project were born in the 1980s. This was by design, uh, the mid 1980s. Um, this was by design, um, because, um, I wanted people who grew up in the 1990s, who were children in the 1990s, whose personalities were formed in the 1990s. And I wanted, um, to convey the cacophony of the 1990s, um, in order to explain, to, to explain what I was trying to explain. So um, once I sort of settled on my characters, uh, I realized that two of them were born in 1984. 
And I thought, how perfect. Right. Uh, because, <laughs> uh, because, um, because I was actually going to be going back to two books with 1984 in the title. Um, one is George Orwell's 1984, um, which, um, describes many things, I think, about a totalitarian society, uh, with incredible precision. But probably the most important for this book is doublethink. Mm. Right? Uh, and doublethink is a term that I believe he originated and that, um, the socio- sociologist who is one of, uh, another main character in the book, um, continues to, goes back to over and over again to explain and to understand mm-hmm. sort of what, um, what has happened in Russia. And basically, to, to make a long story short, what, um, doublethink is important because it is a, a very important survival mechanism developed by people living in a, in a, uh, under conditions of state terror. Um, and the other book with 1984 in the title is Andrea Maldrick's book, Will the Soviet Union Survive Until 1984? Um, it was a self-published essay uh, in the 1960s. I thought, uh, I, I mean, I, I had read it before, and I reread it again when I was researching this book. And every time I read it, I'm just um, flabbergasted by its brilliance. It's... Um, I mean, to imagine that somebody was writing in the Soviet Union in the 1960s when most people really and truly believed that the Soviet Union was going to last forever. And, um, and he, Amadik, um, suggested that, um, that the Soviet regime was much more fragile than people believed. And that part of the reason that it was fragile, um, was because the ideology did not actually have hold of people's hearts and minds. Uh, which is, of course, the opposite of what the regime wanted you to think. It's the opposite of what Sovietologists in the West thought. They were really surprised to discover how mutable people's beliefs were. Um, I think, uh, you know, I would take it much further and say that ideology actually isn't terribly important to the kind of uh, totalitarian controls that exist in the Soviet Union. Um, but in any case, Amalric's essay um, was perhaps the first suggestion from inside the Soviet Union that the regime was fragile. And so I thought both of those books were, were great starting points, especially since I was starting with people born in 1984. So tell us about these four young main characters that you structure the book around. So um, my criteria for um, for choosing people who would, uh, through whose eyes I would tell the story, um, I, I needed people who... I wanted them to talk about, uh, you know, on the one hand, aspiring to be rich and trying to figure out what that was like, um, which was the condition of the country at the time. Like people, uh, wealth became um, the, the the ultimate goal uh, of, it seemed like, everyone in the country and the country itself, which for a country uh, indoctrinated, or we thought indoctrinated with communist ideology was was an incredible sort of a break with with the past, um, and uh, but also at the same time to be watching Soviet movies and television, and this I thought was hugely important because uh, you know we all kind of assume, and by we all I mean Western observers and Moscow intellectuals, and it happened to be both. Um, we all kind of assumed that there would be some sort of decommunization uh, in Russia after the Soviet Union, like denazification. But imagine a, you know, a post-Hitler Germany with uh, 
Nazi propaganda films on TV all the time. And what that does to a young person's mind, especially when that young person is observing his parents or her parents being um, alternately, uh, alternately you know, successful and disoriented and struggling and frightened and elated. Um, and in general, you know, having sort of a cacophonous and emotionally intensive experience on the one hand, and then there's this incredible clarity in Soviet propaganda films mm-hmm. on the other. Um, so I wanted that. I wanted, um, uh, I wanted people who remembered 1991 in some way or another, for whom it was an important childhood memory. Um, and I wanted people whose lives had changed as a result of the crackdown that began in, in 2012. I also needed people who sort of came from different um, socioeconomic strata because I really wanted to show something that I think is greatly underappreciated in the West, at least outside of academic circles, which is just how stratified Soviet society was, uh, how this, this, this classless society was just profoundly class-based, and, um, and how important that legacy is to, to, to contemporary Russia. And I needed at least one of these people to be gay. And finally, uh, and perhaps most important, I needed people who were willing to sit down for this exercise, uh, you know, and talk to me, um, over and over again. Uh, there were, uh, I, I spent different amounts of time with different, uh, characters. I and mean, I call them characters, but they're real people. Um, but, the, the, the most, I think, the person that I spent the most time with, I think, must have given me 35, 40 hours of interview time. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and put up with really bizarre questions like, uh, like, what do you, you know, what do you remember seeing on television in 1991? And what do you remember seeing next? And, you know, what were you wearing? And what did you see out your kitchen window, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so that, uh, you know, most people actually, I think, wouldn't be willing to do that. Uh, and I was incredibly lucky that, um, uh, th- that I had four very generous characters uh, who sat down for this with me. So, so before I, I, we want to talk a little bit about the characters, but but just to uh, 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 just to describe that moment on uh, August 19, nineteen ninety one, they will have all they would have all remembered uh, Swan Lake being aired uh, continually, um, and. This was really, uh, I was there in 1992, uh, and this really was a break from Soviet to a whole new Russia. So as you had mentioned, these four would not have any memory of of the time before any kind of memory of Soviet Russia other than the, what they as you said the propaganda they saw or through the memories of their of their uh parents. Um so so just tell us a little bit about this watershed um year. Uh, what led up to it and how it changed. So starting in um, the mid-1980s, Mikhail Gorbachev undertook a series of reforms uh, in the Soviet Union, uh, and he didn't mean to end the Soviet regime. He meant meant to make it viable, uh, more viable. Uh, But of course, it began crumbling. Um, But it devolved into um, an ongoing power struggle, basically between Gorbachev and on the one hand, um, Soviet hardliners, uh, particularly the KGB, who were opposed to all of his reforms. And on the other hand, Yeltsin and the people he represented who thought that he wasn't going far enough. Uh, 
who wanted, um, you know, a complete conversion to market uh, to, to to market economy and a total end to censorship. And Gorbachev was actually unable or unwilling to go that far. And so, in their, from their point of view, uh, he was sort of zigzagging between them and the hardliners. Uh, and in um, in August '91, the hardliners staged a coup. Uh, they deposed Gorbachev, or they placed him under house arrest. And Yeltsin fought back on behalf of Gorbachev. Uh, but one and and won. The the coup folded after three days. And uh, and uh, after three days, it looked, if at first it looked menacing and it looked like like the worst that we, uh, all of us had expected, that it was all going to fail and we were just going to go back to the Soviet Union as it had been. Uh, and then suddenly it looked like laughable. Um, and uh, after the coup folded and Gorbachev came back to Moscow, having been released from house arrest, Yeltsin basically made it clear that he had won the power struggle. Hmm. He hadn't actually uh, defended Russian democracy on behalf of Gorbachev. Uh, he expected Gorbachev to go much further, and in fact, as it turned out a few months later, he he expected Gorbachev to resign because Yeltsin negotiated the dissolution of the Soviet Union to his great credit, the peaceful dissolution of the Soviet Union, uh, and um, once the country ceased to exist, the uh, the leader of the country lost his job. So, um, to Western observers and to Moscow intellectuals, uh, that moment seemed like the triumph of democracy and uh, and a break with the past and the beginning of a glorious democratic era. To a lot of other Russians, I think it actually looked different. I think it looked like um, a power struggle in which one former apparatchik beat another former apparatchik. And I think that view is, in hindsight, more accurate. Uh, Yeltsin did not have the intention of dissolving all Soviet institutions, which is not to say that he wasn't committed to ideals of democracy. He very much was. But in his mind, um, that meant uh, going to a market system, lifting censorship, but it did not mean uh, dissolving Soviet ministries. It did not mean um, uh, getting people who had been in leadership in the Soviet Union, out of power, did not even mean getting rid of the Communist Party, and it most importantly, to my mind, didn't mean reckoning with the past and having a public conversation about the history of terror. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Masha Gessen, author of The Future is History, discussing the fall of the Soviet Union. So uh, these two different perspectives, how did they come out in the interviews that you did for this book? I, I was interested in knowing how these young people uh, observed their parents' uh, behavior. So um, th- they saw their parents scared, angry, 
and disappointed uh, as a result of the, 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 during the coup and, and after the coup. I mean, one of the uh, one of the characters is uh, Boris Nemtsov's daughter, Zhanna. And I think that uh, Nemtsov certainly was belonged to the camp of people who thought this was a final break with the past, and now there was going to be a glorious era of democracy. He was a political activist, and he was shortly afterward appointed um, governor of the Nizhny Novgorod region, which launched his illustrious political career. And for nearly a decade, Russians were convinced that he was going to be the country's next president. And of course, toward the end of the book, as we all know, he, he ends up being assassinated. Um, and other, another character, Masha, saw her mother just just furious. She just wanted to get out of the country. She knew that there was nothing good was ever going to happen here. Um, she was in the process of getting Masha her foreign travel passport. And she just, she, she was, I think, mostly mad at the coup for interfering with her plans to finally get out. And she never did emigrate. Um, but I, I also, uh, the other three characters in the book are intellectuals. And, um, what I was, uh, into particular kinds of intellectuals of an older generation, or actually of a couple of older generations. And what I was trying to pursue with those characters, um, was, uh, something that I, I think runs through the, the book, which is the, the understanding that unless you have the intellectual tools of interpreting what happens in your country, you can't change what happens in your country. Uh, a society, just like a person who can't understand themselves, can't move forward. And in Soviet society, the social sciences had been uh, quite purposefully and consciously destroyed. And this meant that uh, social scientists were exiled or imprisoned. And it was the, the study of sociology, the study of psychoanalysis, the study of philosophy to a great extent, except for Marxist philosophy, was banned. You couldn't get books. You had to have special access to special libraries, and even they had a very limited selection. Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm, I was uh, one of the characters is uh, a great Russian sociologist who was working with even with an even more great Soviet sociologist, Yuri Levada, and they uh, they had been allowed to come out sort of from the underground a couple of years earlier and to conduct their first survey. And they had the hypothesis that uh, Homo Sovieticus, a kind of Soviet man shaped by the years of state terror, was uh, on his way out and because it had been 30 years since the end of terror. And that once Homo Sovieticus uh, sort of died out, then Soviet, the Soviet Union would crumble and so, because Soviet institutions rested on Homo Sovieticus. And that's what they thought happened in 1991. When they went back to um, conduct the survey again in 94, and then again in 99, and, and so on, uh, they discovered they had been wrong. They discovered that what they described as homo sovieticus was actually um, a, a type of person, a type of cultural institution that was incredibly resilient. And as they said in 94, Homo Sovieticus is surviving. And as they said in 99, Homo Sovieticus is not only thriving, but reproducing. Uh, and that they think, and I think, has a lot to do with why um, Putinism has been so successful in calling forth 
many of the habits and, and, and customs and norms of a totalitarian society. I feel like this ties into what you said about writing about trauma and the effects of trauma of living through this traumatic time, because those can be very lingering effects. And there's a great deal of scientific evidence showing that trauma can be inherited sometimes even at the genetic level. Is that a factor in this sociological research? Um, so I, um, I tried to follow the thinking of, of the one sociologist and one psychoanalyst. I, when I originally set out to write the book, I actually thought that I would probably use the genetic research as well, the genetic research done in, in Israel um, and I think in maybe even a couple of other places, but primarily in Israel, on uh, the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. I uh, and I've, I've I've written about medical genetics in the past quite extensively, so, so I, I was aware of the research. I didn't actually end up using it um, because, uh, in the end, I stuck very closely to uh, what was perceived by you know, people on the ground, and so and the sociological research on Russian material and the psych- psychoanalytic conversations. Uh, provided me with plenty of material. But um, an example of what I'm talking about is uh, the psycho, psychoanalyst, who is one of the main characters in the book, um, describes how she was working with various families uh, suffering the after-effects of Soviet terror, like every Soviet family, right, or post-Soviet family. But so this one particular family, for example, um, a woman came in to talk about her daughter. Uh, it was sort of a standard Russian household um, with, with women of three different generations, or rather an older woman, a middle-aged woman, and a little girl all living together. And uh, the little girl kept doing inexplicable stuff, like setting the curtains on fire or locking her grandmother out on the balcony in the cold. And so very quickly, obviously, they got down to uh, the idea that... Um, that the little girl was expressing her mother's aggression toward her own mother, right? Some, uh, something that, that the mother was uh, too obedient and well-behaved uh, to express herself. But as they dug deeper, they also discovered that the grandmother had been a guard in the gulag. And the little girl was unconsciously acting out a torture practice from the gulag, locking somebody out in the cold. And I think that, that that's that that story to me is kind of a metaphor for the whole book. Uh, it's an entire society that is unconsciously acting out behaviors from a much darker time, when a time when when Russia actually had an actual totalitarian regime uh, actually enforcing state terror. It doesn't have that now, but it still has a totalitarian society. The subtitle of your book is How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. What's been happening recently, and what are some of the unexpected parallels that you found with recent events in America? (laughs) Um, uh, I'd say that the biggest parallels have to do with Putin's appeal, right? Uh, When Putin cracked down um, and he... um, he cracked down in 2012 in response to the popular protests of 2011-2012, and, 
and I think he changed the nature of his regime from basically an authoritarian regime, a regime uh, where that is, that is depoliticized, where people are expected to stay home while a ruler or a group of rulers plunder the country. That's authoritarianism. Totalitarianism is kind of the opposite. Everything is political. There is no private realm. And citizens are actually expected to be out in the streets or out in public squares expressing their support for the great leader. So Russia went from being an authoritarian society to being a totalitarian society in, 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 in some key ways. Um, after, uh, after Putin cracked down and, and really started to mobilize the country. And I th- where I see parallels with, with what is happening in the United States, you know, given that we're talking about completely different uh, sets of institutions and, and, and customs and historical legacies, right, and political culture. Um, but what's interesting is that um, the way that uh, the reasons that Putin, uh, that Putin's mobilization is so compelling to people is because they felt so destabilized and disoriented. Uh, in the 1990s, it's what um, the, the, the social psychologist Eric Frum, uh, who I think is, is slowly coming back into vogue uh, because he, his writing is actually incredibly relevant um, to, to, to the present moment. But um, one of his books is Escape from Freedom, and he wrote it in 1940, and it's about um, Hitler's coming to power. And the theory that he lays out in that book is that um, there, there are times in human history when freedom becomes too much to bear. Because freedom, he says, comes in two kinds. It comes in the kind of freedom from freedom from constraints, uh, you know, freedom from having your parents tell you what to do, which is always what we want. Uh, but then there's also freedom too, freedom to invent yourself, freedom to construct your own future. And that's much more difficult, and it's not something that most people want most of the time. And when it becomes incumbent on people to really invent themselves uh, because societies change in in, in, in profound ways, uh, and he begins with the end of feudalism. He talks about how people were no longer born into you know, a particular trade, or they could no longer be sure that they would live the rest of their lives in the on the street on which they were born and, or in the village in which they were born. Once that happened, uh, when that happened for a large number of people, freedom too became an unbearable burden. And, and so he explains, for example, the rise of Calvinism, um, by, uh, by this need to, to find a leader who will take your agency away and mobilize you, uh, in, in, in favor of something. And usually that something has to do with an imaginary past. And then he fast-forwards to the 1920s and 30s in Europe and sort of describes that moment as that kind of moment, right? When, when, when people were displaced, disoriented, and robbed of a, of a clear vision of the future, and freedom, too, became too much. And so someone like Hitler held great appeal. Um, so when I was writing the book, I was focusing on that uh, theory quite a bit. Um, and... It's clear how Putin sort of taps into this great nostalgia for a past that never was, when Russia was great, when everybody was comfortable, when things were clear, when you didn't have to make too many decisions and you were taken care of. Uh, and of course, I think that Trump appeals to the same kind of need, uh, 
And he very similarly talks about an imaginary past greatness um, and you know, some vision of a past that never was, but we know we were comfortable in that past and we're great. So I, I, w- I wanted to ask, so as we're drawing parallels between re- regimes or governments that are changing, uh, you know, perhaps slowly, perhaps quickly, but unawares to others, um, does, does the Mueller investigation re- really matter? And what should we be, what is Trump doing while the U.S. is following this? Um, so uh, I think the Mueller investigation matters because truth matters. Um, but I think that there is uh, that we have as a society an unhealthy obsession with that investigation. Uh, for, and I think it's unhealthy for two reasons. One is that um, it it focuses our attention on something hidden, on secrets rather than what's out uh, what's out in the open. And there's so much awful stuff out in the open. Uh, American institutions and American democracy itself, possibly, are being destroyed in front of our very eyes. And Putin is not doing it. It's Trump doing it, and, and, and his people are doing it. And so I think we should be, because human beings don't have endless attention spans and endless bandwidth, we need to be engaging with that. We need to be engaging with what's out in the open, rather than uh, what what's hidden and can be revealed. And a related problem, I think, with, with the focus of the investig- on the investigation is that there's magical thinking involved. Uh, people think that once Mueller comes back with his conclusions, somehow our national nightmare will be over. And it won't. Even if, and I think this is extremely unlikely, but even if he finds definitive proof of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin, even then there's no clear path to to impeachment. But as I said, I think it's 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 exceedingly unlikely. I think he's going to come back with a lot of really unsavory stuff, a lot of loose ends, a lot of questionable contact, a lot of things that we really wish hadn't happened, but no conclusive evidence of a collusion. And it sounds like your research really points to issues of of individual expectations and experiences of government and of what government is for this this idea of of the unbearable nature of freedom and sometimes just wanting someone to point you in a direction and tell you what to do is not something that's going to change even when the people in power change so what shapes a society in a direction that makes totalitarianism less appealing and maybe less possible. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that in the states we're in danger of descending into totalitarianism because I think to establish a totalitarian society, um, there does have to be state terror. You can't just like whip people into a frenzy of totalitarianism. Uh, The classic definition of totalitarianism always involves state terror. Uh, My argument in the book is that because Russia has already had state terror, it has left such an imprint and has created um, such mechanisms of survival that it's very easy for someone like Putin to tap into that quite economically, right? It's his power resource. He has to arrest only a few people in order to communicate to tens of millions of people that they have to start uh, acting in perfect accordance with the Kremlin's vaguely expressed wishes. Right. Um, that can't happen 
in a society like the United States. You have to have people conditioned to to receive those kinds of t- signals first. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can descend into a kind of autocracy. That actually is uh, uh, it's it. It doesn't take away nearly as many individual freedoms. It is infinitely preferable to live uh, in a tyranny uh, to living in a, in a totalitarian regime. Um, but um, and I think you know I think Trump has uh, has every chance of of establishing a kind of autocracy, a kind of tyranny in this country. And I think that the way to fight it is not by trying to discredit Trump, is not by, um, and I think this was Hillary Clinton's great mistake. Um, it, it's not, it's not by, even by sort of fighting him on policy, although that's certainly something that uh, the politicians should be doing. I think that the way to fight it is to engage with the need that brought him to power in the first place. And that's a need for the, for vision of the future. And I think that's the thing that wasn't really coming from Hillary Clinton's campaign. Uh, I think that Bernie's campaign had a bit more of it, right? But the messaging, if you think about it, uh, you know, Trump was saying, let's go back to an imaginary past when we were great and everything was wonderful. And Hillary was saying, we're great because we're good, meaning things are great just the way they are, which explicitly did not address the needs of people for whom things aren't great the way they are. And um, and I think the way to address those needs is not by saying that we'll bring back more jobs, but to really imaginatively engage with the changes that are happening in the world and to, you know, to talk about a post-work economy, to talk about the things that Hillary, as it turns out, now that we've read her book, um, chose not to talk about, even though they were on my mind, like universal basic income. Right? That would have been a conversation about the future. We've been talking with Masha Gessen, and you can find her book, The Future is History, in stores right now. Masha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about the year's best-selling books so far. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm David Handler, the author of The Girl with the Kaleidoscope Eyes, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about the bestsellers for the first nine months of 2017. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. How are you? Doing well, thank you. It's very nice to have you here. Hello, Jim. Hey, Mark. You're not, you're not on the list, Mark, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> no, well, I, you know, neither am I. Uh, nor are many other people who didn't have books come out in 2017. So uh, tell us uh, what's, what's on the top of your list so far. All right. So what we're do, doing for Monday is, you know, uh, checking in on where the industry stands after um, first nine months of the year, getting ready to go into the big fall season. Uh, so we have, you know, we've got a few things here. We've got the top 10 list, uh, print titles so far. Um, and the, the thing that's really interesting, I think, is it's, uh, seven out of the 10 are backlist. Mm. Um, and there's, uh, a fair, a little bit more fic, uh, nonfiction than, um, 
fiction. Now, I was going to ask whether books that came out at the beginning of the year had an unfair advantage, but it sounds like books that came out before this year have an even more yeah. of an Well, I don't I mean, that you, can, you can say that. And I, when you think about it when you look at the list, but a lot of books have been out for a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and something like, and what we're pointing to is, once again, uh, you know, no adult blockbuster. The last year, let's remember that um, Harry Potter and their Cursed Child by you know J.K. Rowling sold four million copies right. over the summer. Mm-hmm. Wow! So uh, you know nobody came close to that this yeah. year. So um, you know, not that that's a, necessarily a bad thing. Actually, in fact, some people in the industry are starting to talk about. Well, look, we can still have some small gains even if we don't have blockbusters. And as the first nine months of the year um, have proven, they're right, Mm -hmm. because overall units, they go up, and we can touch on that in a second. But I know you're all dying to know who's the number one best-selling author so far this year, and it is Rupee Carr and Milk with Milk and Honey. Um, You know, that book's been out for 18 months or so, I want to say, maybe even a little more. But it's been picking up steam... uh, Right along. Wow. And it sold over 706,000 copies no so kidding. far this year. Wow. I'm, I wonder how much of that has been driven by controversy because uh, there, there have definitely been some people coming out of the woodwork to say that her work may not be entirely original. Right. Um, well, anybody who's successful is her. You know, some people are going to take shots at her. Her new book just came out, mm. uh, I think, this week or last week. Um, so we'll see how that does. And, you know, she's on a real roll. I mean, there's really not much even a sign of things slowing down. So um, she's number one, and she had almost uh, 200,000 copy lead over um, another title that people will recognize, I'm sure, Oh, the Places You'll Go Mm -hmm. (laughs) by Dr. Seuss. Always popular. Always popular, especially around graduation time. Right. the, fir- the first new title that came out this year is uh, by an author everybody knows. Grisham's uh, Camino Islands was a uh, number five, and that sold about 528,000 mm. copies. Not bad. Right. Not bad. Uh, like I said, it was the first, the, the first frontless title that came out. The other two frontless titles, The Women in Cabin 10, which came in at number seven, and sold about wow. five hundred and seventy-five thousand, and Lilac Girls, which was number ten at five seven at four seventeen. So um, it's an interesting list. Uh, like we said, it has a mix of um, backlist uh, with some front list and more nonfiction than fiction. Are these all formats? This is just prints, but all print formats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. you know. Uh, we, we're powered by BookScan on these lists, and they don't they don't collect ebook data. Right. So what what all this meant though for the for the first nine months of the year for the entire industry was that uh, sales are up two percent, and you know like we just said before, given you know no no title driving people into the stores like if it's Harry Potter or. Um, you know, the girl on the train or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's a pretty, it's a respectable gain, um, especially in, in this media environment where, you know, sales, sales are tough. That's good news. Yeah. I mean, it sounds still, I mean, much better than a deficit. So 2%, that's what we were seeing years and years ago without, uh, without uh, big blockbuster books. Right, right. Yeah. So it's uh it's nice that the you know print resurgence seems to be um 
you know, ongoing. And this yeah. would be the thir- at least the third year that print sales will have gone up uh, after you know declining quite a bit yeah. uh, a few years ago. And you know what's good for um, booksellers as well is that you know through the retail and club channel, which uh, is one of the avenues that Bookscan measures, sales are up three percent. And that includes your bookstores as well mm-hmm. as Amazon. So that's good news for bookstores. Where there's some weakness is in the mass merchandiser channel, which is like Walmart and some of the other warehouse clubs. And their sales are down 9%. Hmm. So that's a little bit of a wearing sign. Um, is that a trend? Do we see that last? Well, the they, last ha- they haven't. I don't know if they went down last year, but they haven't done as well as retail and club right. uh, in a while. I mean, they're dependent on... Well, they did great with adult coloring books uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. a few years yeah. ago. So yeah. and some of that might be reflected in here. And I'm sure they did. Uh, I'm sure they did very well with Potter. Um, you know, coloring books bestsellers, right? Uh, that type of thing. Um, you know, was where they shine. So, and then you know, by you take a quick look at um, you know by category again, we mentioned nonfiction was doing well, and juvenile nonfiction in particular uh, was up about six percent. And there, you know, the whole board book phenomenon is still is still helping to push sales there. You know, kind of cheap, uh, but well put together yeah, yeah. <laughs> books that you know teach kids the basics of all kinds of different things. And sales of that board book format were, uh, were up about eleven percent in the first nine months. Wow. It's, it's all me. <laughs> it's all. So what, what, it's have all me. Buying, what have you been buying, Rose? It's all me buying books for my toddler, um, who cannot get enough of Leslie Patricelli's adorable storybooks um, for kids. I, you know, I don't know what would qualify a board book as fiction or nonfiction. I guess I'd call those the you know, fiction because it's right, a yeah. it's a fictional child getting ready for bed or you know looking for a lost pacifier or what have you, but. Uh, maybe a counting book, like a numbers book, right, would be sure. nonfiction. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, but I don't I w- usually think of putting board books in those categories. They're just, you know, <laughs> well, the books for my kids. Here, here, but <laughs> read this nonfiction book. Right. <laughs> but yeah, well, I mean, board books have, I mean, you're definitely correct, have helped drive um, sales in all of juvenile fiction and nonfiction. And juvenile fiction is up 1%, which doesn't sound like much. But again, we just mentioned last summer, uh, Potter sold four million copies. Right, right. So you got to make up for that, you know, and you got to do that with a lot of different titles. That's great. Well, it sounds sounds like a pretty happy market at the moment. Yeah, I think it's a good place for where publishers are to get ready for you know as the crucial yeah. holiday selling season is is you know almost here. We yeah. had our first Christmas title on the bestseller list today. So. Oh, I didn't see that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I missed it. It wasn't Elf on the Shelf, we, was it? It was, it was <laughs> not. It was a Christmas romance. We gave it a starred review, Jim. You should check it out. I definitely will. <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, for coming on and sharing these numbers. Uh, hey, thank you guys. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com.
And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another in-depth author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 